Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. I was asked uh, to uh, pick my, you know, uh, one of my favorite Bible uh, characters, and uh, I think one of my favorite books in the Bible is Isaiah. Uh, I just love Isaiah. I make sure I read it every year, and I I don't zip through it. I take my time. Um, And, um, you know, Isaiah's time is sort of like our time. And I think there's a lot that we can uh, learn from him and and apply to our own lives. Um, So just uh, join with me in prayer, would you? Lord, thank you for um, the opportunity we have to open the Bible. We thank you, Lord, that we can open it up to a book like Isaiah's and and look at a a book written... um, almost uh, 3,000 years ago, and find in it, Lord, things that pertain uh, right to our lives today. And Lord, as uh, you were the God who called Isaiah and spoke to Israel, Lord, you are the God who calls people today, and you speak to our country. And so, Lord, help us to hear your voice, uh, your eternal word, uh, your Holy Spirit speaking to our hearts. Uh, Help us to give you our full attention and uh, to offer ourselves up to you, in Jesus' name, amen. Um, I, call, I put a title on this message, and uh, it's pretty long. Uh, how to keep your head when your country is falling apart and your hope is in the distant future. And that's just kind of how I feel, personally, in 2023. It's how I feel about my country, and... Uh, it, you know, my hope isn't the next election cycle. That's not going to do it. Uh, our hope is the distant future. However, and it's not as far as Isaiah's uh, hope was, but it's still to the future for us. Uh, I believe our country is still the best country in the world. There's no place I'd rather live, except for maybe February. I could be somewhere else. But, um, but what bothers the faithful is how the foundations of our country are being dismantled. Um, and it's a lot like Israel before the captivity. And God would send prophets, and some kings would do what was right, and most of them would do what wasn't right. And, uh, you know, here we are in, uh, in a similar day. So back in the day, uh, if you read in Samuel, uh, they went up to see Samuel, and Samuel was called a seer. And they said, let's go up to the seer. And so the seer was somebody who had a vision you know, who God would give a vision to. And that verse, uh, Second Sam, or 1 Samuel 9, 9 says, you know, they used to be called seers, but now by Samuel's time they're called prophets. And that word in the Hebrew sort of just means inspired. They were inspired by God to speak for him. And so they were uh, called to deliver God's message. And quite often the prophets spoke to the kings of the country. So if, um, I just got to read a, a verse or two out of uh, First uh, Kings 22, and then we'll just get to Isaiah. But he says, um, this is one of my favorite uh, uh, portions when it talks about a prophet speaking to uh, a king. So it's King Ahab, and Ahab wasn't a very good king. And uh, he's got a bunch of prophets around him who are telling him what he wants to hear. And so they're saying, yeah, king, you're going to win this victory. You go up, buddy. You're gonna, God's going to give you the victory. But he's not sure because he kind of knows that these people are yes-men. And so... Um, so he asked this one guy, there's this one guy that always tells him the truth, and it's Mike Aiah. 
And, and, and so verse 14 of 1 Kings 22 is, The Lord lives, whatever the Lord says to me, that I will speak. And he came to the king, and the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall we refrain? And he said, go and prosper, for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. That's what everybody was saying. And the king said, how many times shall I make you swear that you tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? So he did. Okay. He said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains and sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let him return to his house in peace. And the king of Israel said to Joseph, did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? And then I went on to say, I saw the Lord high and lifted up on his throne. And this is what's going to happen. So that's kind of what a prophet's job was in, in large part, was speaking to leaders. Um, so we try to figure out where uh, Uzziah's uh, come from. The Jewish tradition is that uh, we know his father's name was Amos, and uh, Amos and King Amaziah of Judah were brothers. So there's Amaziah, Uzziah, Hezekiah, Manasseh. That's sort of the kingly line uh, around the time of uh, Isaiah. And so it seems like uh, Isaiah had some royal blood in him and uh, access to kings and uh, the, the, uh, the place of power. So Second Chronicles 26, 22, it says, now the rest of the acts of Uzziah from first to last, the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, wrote. So he was a scribe in the royal house. Uh, who would write down the court history of Uzziah. Um, he was married. He had a wife and two sons. They called her the prophetess. I don't know if we call our pastor's wives prophetess, but uh, we call them pastor's wives. But anyway, um, he was just a kind of a regular guy in a family, and yet God called him into, uh, to serve him. The pivotal, and I'm going to go through the whole book. Like, I hope you brought your lunch, because... Um, <laughs> You know, he's, it's pretty hard to just kind of, anyway, I'm going to pick the high points of the book. The high point of the book is Isaiah 6, at least as far as Isaiah personally is concerned. So let's just read through it. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And so here he is, he's a scribe in the court of Uzziah, and Uzziah dies, and God gives him a vision that same year. So he sees the Lord on his throne. Above it stood, above the throne stood seraphim, angelic creatures. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Quite a creature. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. And so Isaiah sees this, and it, it kind of reminds me of Paul's vision. And Paul said, I don't know if I was in my body, out of my body, I don't know. And so I don't know if Isaiah knew either, but he was there. He saw the thrones, throne of God. He said, woe is me, verse 5, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Like, he's just overwhelmed with the holiness of God. And, you know, uh, we're not ready to meet God, even as believers. You know what's going to happen when you meet God? You're going to fall on your face on the floor and wish you were dead because he's just going to be overwhelming. He told Moses, nobody can see my face and live. We uh, are not ready for that. Um, good thing uh, Jesus will prepare us. Um, 
so he, he kind of realized when you see God for who he is, you begin to realize your sin and just how sinful you are. And so what am I going to do? He's like, I, you know, here I am, I'm, I'm this man, and yet I'm unclean, and my whole country is unclean. Verse 6, one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he taken with tongs from the altar. So he got this altar of fire around the throne of God, and he touched my mouth with it, a hot coal from the altar. He said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. Well, that's the altar of God. And only the altar of God can atone for sin. That's the altar of God in heaven. The altar of God on earth is what? It's the cross. That's the altar of God on earth. That's the only place you can go to have your sins forgiven. The altar of Jesus, the cross. So he, he gets his, you know, God you know, takes away his sin. He, uh, he has all this uncleanness and, and God takes it away. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? You know, notice the, the plurality. That's the trinity of God. That's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the us of God uh, that you see at different places in Scripture. And, and Isaiah, he'd already, I remember what Sean shared weeks ago with the hands up. Hands up like this is you surrender. Isaiah had surrendered. He was on his face, I, I think, but he had surrendered to God. He said, God, I'm undone. I don't know what I'm going to do. And and then uh, God cleansed him. And then, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah said, pick me. I'll go. I'll go. Because he was just overwhelmed with the, uh, the goodness and the power of God. Send me. And so this is what he sent him into. Verse 9 and the rest of the chapter. He said, go and tell this people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make this heart, the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy, and shut their eyes. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. You might recognize that from something uh, from the Gospels. In other words, you're going to preach Isaiah, but it's not going to make a huge difference to them. They're not going to convert en masse just like I converted you they are going to be hardened by the truth. And then he said, well, how long, Lord? And he answered, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant. The houses are without a man. The land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. But a tenth will be in it, the remnant, and will return and be for consuming as a terebinth tree or as an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down, so the holy seed shall be its stump. In other words, God said, I'm going to leave a stump, but everything else is going off into captivity, and you're going to preach until that starts to happen. That's not really a, uh, a lot to look forward to. A hard calling. So Natalie and um, Jalen, whatever God's calling you to do, it's not going to be an easy calling. But it's going to be what God wants you to do. So my first question this morning is, have you, have you heard that call? I mean, not everybody's going to go off to a Bible college. and Not everybody's going to go to another place to be a missionary. But God is looking for people who are willing to surrender just willing to surrender it all to him. 
to offer yourself. And uh, it doesn't matter who you are, what you're doing. If, you're, uh, if you, you know, you're working at a job, God wants you to surrender yourself so he can use you at your job. If you're raising your family, God wants you to surrender yourself so you can instill uh, the things of God in your children. These are the most important things on earth. You know, the world doesn't value that, but, but God values that. You know, whether, you know, being faithful on the job or being faithful at home, God values those things. There's nothing more important, no matter what the world tells you. So that's Isaiah's calling, and I started there because that just, that's just what happened. But when you get to chapter 1, um, I just want to kind of go over his basic message. Uh, he brought a message, God's message, it warned of judgment against sin and offered good news of salvation. It's kind of like what we're supposed to do. That's the kind of task God has given uh, New Testament believers. So uh, chapter 1, verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not consider. Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. The whole country was laden with iniquity. Um, just like our country. Sin is so prevalent and so rampant and, and we kind of hardly even notice anymore. Um, but we ought to notice. Verse 13 Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the sacred meeting. He's talking about the feasts, the sacrifices that Israel was called to perform. God, he began to hate it because it was hypocritical. Their hearts weren't in it. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates they are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. How do you think that went over? <laughs> that was Isaiah's message. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. He's not just talking about the kings here. He's talking about the priests, about those who rule the house and run the house of God. The hypocrisy was making God sick. It's kind of like what Jesus said about the church of Laodicea because we were, uh, you know, people are just lukewarm when it comes to Christ. He will spew, spew us out of his mouth. Like, that's quite a picture. I remember the first time I read that, I thought, is that me? <laughs> and then he says this, another kind of famous verse. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Verse 18, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Tough stuff. 
One of Isaiah's other great themes was the day of the Lord and the promise of the kingdom. And so you come to chapter 2, and uh, it says, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days. And so in the Old Testament, the latter days were the days about the end, okay? The end times, you could say. In the latter days, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains. It shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This is often quoted about the end of war and the longing for peace on earth. And it's a promise of God. This is coming. This is what the end is going to bring. But first, other things have to happen. And so, alongside this theme of the, the coming kingdom in the last days is the day of the Lord. And he's always referencing the day of the Lord. Verse 12, For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty. Upon everything lifted up, it shall be brought low. Upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are lifted up, and upon all the oaks of Bashan, upon all the high mountains, and upon all the hills that are lifted up, upon every high tower, and upon every fortified wall, upon all the ships of Tarshish, and upon all the beautiful sloops, the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be brought low. The Lord alone shall be exalted in that day, but the idols he shall utterly abolish. I'm reading on the New King James in case you're you find it a bit different than the ESV, but it's pretty close. They shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth from the terror of the Lord, when the glory of his majesty, when he rises to shake the earth mightily. In that day, a man will cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made each for himself to worship, to the moles and bats, to go into the clefts of the rocks and into the crags of the rugged rocks from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth mightily. Just like Revelation 6. If you read Revelation 6, he obviously is speaking the same message. God's going to shake the earth and they're going to go into the, and ask the mountains to fall on them so the Lord can't get them. That's the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord's judgment. Verse 3, verse 8, for Jerusalem stumbled and Judah has fallen. I hadn't fallen yet in his time, but he's prophesying, he's predicting, he's saying that this is going to happen just like Moses wrote down in the law that if uh, Israel and Judah continually disobeyed God, they were going to fall and be taken away into captivity. Jerusalem stumbled and Judah has fallen because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord to provoke the eyes of his glory. They look on their, the look on their countenance witnesses against them and they declare their sin as Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to their soul for they have brought evil upon themselves. And it's just like our day. Uh, <laughs> sin is paraded openly in our cities. You think God doesn't notice? 
Do you think somehow that has changed? No, it hasn't changed. God's thoughts about those things haven't changed. You ever get tired of hearing it? I do. It's really difficult because we're called to love everybody, and, and we must. But we don't love evil. We're not called to love evil. Verse 13, the Lord stands up to plead and stands to judge the people. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders of his people and his princes. For you have eaten up the vineyard. The, poor, the plunder of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor, says the Lord God of hosts. Now that involves all of us. I broke a, a fan we had, um, and so I'd buy a new fan about a month, six weeks ago, and I'm wandering through Walmart trying to find the cheapest fan. So I had this $50 fan, but what I really wanted was a stand-up fan that, you know, turns and rotates, and then I saw one, 25 bucks. Boom, I got her. Took it home. <laughs> I never saw such a fan as this. Like, it was so, it was all plastic. I'm even thinking the motor's plastic, but I'm not sure. But, you know, I, I put it together, and it's bad plastic. You know, like, it's really cheap plastic. I don't know how long it'll last, but it actually works pretty good. You know, I'll get it in the bedroom, and it'll throw a lot of air around. But I was thinking, who made this fan? What did they pay the people that made that fan? If I can buy it for 25 bucks. So Walmart sold it, and they're making money off it. I don't know. They must make, I don't know. What do you make off a $25 fan? You must make 10 bucks. Otherwise, they wouldn't sell it. Well, I used to work at, at Home Hardware, and I could tell by, the, by their uh, sales tag how much it cost Home Hardware and how much they sold it for. The markup on a lot of stuff is really high. So it had to come across probably on a, you know, a, ship from the Orient. Um, I don't know, what's that cost? Uh, so then some company had it made over wherever it was made, likely in China, and uh, so they had to make money off it. So some poor person was making, like what, a buck an hour to make that fan? Maybe not, yeah, maybe not even that much. They weren't making much. And so this applies to us. We live in our system lives off the poor. We grind the faces of the poor. Now, personally, we don't. But that's what happens. It used to be, when I was younger, everything was made in Canada. You could buy a fan made by Canarm in Ontario. Good, solid Canadian fan made out of metal <laughs> with real switches. But along the way, we decided we didn't want to pay that much money, so companies sent all that business, all that manufacturing to the Far East where they could make people, uh, you know, make that stuff for next to nothing so we could live better, could, we could have more stuff. That's on us. And I don't know how you get out of that. I'd rather buy a $25 fan than a $250 fan. But this is, this is the condemnation of God on our whole culture, the parading of evil and grinding the faces of the poor. Another famous saying of Isaiah, chapter 5, verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, 
who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Verse 25, therefore the anger of the Lord is aroused against his people. He has stretched out his hand against them and stricken them and the hills trembled and their carcasses were as refuge in the midst of the streets. That's what was coming to Israel. That's what Isaiah was prophesying based out of what Moses had said in the law would happen. What God did to Israel is a warning of what he's going to do to us. And when I say us, I'm talking about our country, our culture. You know, people think it's going to go on forever. No, it's not. I don't know when it's going to come crashing down, but it's going to come crashing down. Another thing that Isaiah said that uh, pretty pertinent for us, chapter 8, verse 12. Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. So he warned his people against getting caught up in the prevailing conspiracy theories of the day. And I was thinking, man, we're we're overrun with them today, I'll tell you. I was just thinking of a few that were really false, blatantly false. Uh, The vaccine had tracking chips. You know, a lot of Christians reposted those things and, and because that's what they, that's what, People do is you hear a good conspiracy, you better pass it on. I read one this summer. I thought that's pretty overdone. Trudeau had the fires set. In other words, the government was responsible for all the fires across the country. Um, now, some people were caught lighting fires, but that's a really overblown. That's a conspiracy that has no foundation. It's just somebody threw it out there, and. Uh, they saw a helicopter, now, I watched the video, a helicopter, and it was sending out uh, blobs of fuel that would light, and it was to burn, what do they call that? There's a burn that they do before, you know, to, to prevent the fire from going any farther. That's what that was. But somebody said, oh, the government is starting the fires. And people go, oh my gosh, Trudeau's starting the fires. Like, jeez, give me a break. Now, here's, a, here's one. I, I've heard this before, and I, but I, didn't, I hadn't heard it recently until this summer. Um, somebody posted, uh, wow, look at all the chemtrails today. Chemtrails? What do you mean, chemtrails? And they're talking about the jet trails. They're called contrails, right? Basically exhaust out of the jet fuel that uh, turns into uh, vapor in the atmosphere, and sometimes it can get pretty big. And uh, the conspiracy is the government is putting all these chemicals in the atmosphere to create climate change. And so I did a little digging, and uh, I was talking to a friend of mine who used to live in Colorado. She said, yeah, that used to be going around Colorado in the 90s. And then I did a little reading on it. That was going way back into the 70s that people have been saying that. Like it's baloney. Not that they couldn't do it, but, to, but just to kind of repost that and say, you know, that's what they're doing. Um, we shouldn't be doing that. Don't 
call a conspiracy everything that these people call a conspiracy. Don't spread stuff like that. Now, on the other hand, there are some conspiracies that are true, just like there were in these days. Uh, the, the biggest one, one of the biggest, I got two in mind, one of the biggest is there is a blatant effort to overturn the natural order going on in our country in 2023. The, there's no hiding it. They want to flip the order that God has established, right, getting right down to male and female and all that, to just turn that and get rid of it. It's an overt conspiracy to call good evil and to call evil good. That's what's going on. I, I kind of never he heard of this before until I read it in this book. Um, it's pretty, pretty crazy. This is, um, I referenced this when I uh, did some devotions at family camp. Um, John Mark Comer, The Ruthless Elimination of Her, and he's talking about uh, um, the, the uh, North American economy and... and um, so he says, I'm not much of a conspiracy theorist, but it's an open secret that after the war, Second World War, the tycoons of big business, the shadow politicians of D.C., and the madmen of New York City conspired to remake the American economy. One Wall Street banker said this, we must shift America from a needs to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things, even before the old have been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. Edward Crowdick, a pioneer of industrial relations, called it the new economic gospel of consumption. This is actually after the First World War. In 1927, one journalist observed this about America. A change has come over our democracy. It's called consumptionism. The American citizen's first importance to his country is no longer that of a citizen, but a consumer. See, it didn't used to be like that. Um, and this is a conspiracy that we're all taking part in to change how we, uh, what does he say here? Uh, it wasn't atheism that's replacing Christianity, it's shopping. <laughs> Shopping's the new place to worship. Uh, the new liturgy is clicking your mouse on an Amazon product. Crazy. And then he has this other thing, um, Advertising now, as we now know, it started not on Madison Avenue, but in Berlin with another group of power brokers, the Nazis. They took the ideas of an Austrian psychotherapist named Freud, then unknown in America, and used them to manipulate the masses. Freud was one of the first modern thinkers to point out that human beings aren't nearly as rational or autonomous as we like to think. We constantly make irrational decisions based on what he called our unconscious drives. We are far more emotionally tricked and desire-driven than we care to admit. The Nazis picked up Freud's ideas, used them to shape their propaganda machine. Um, Hitler was a master of fanning the two most basic human emotions, I want and I fear. After the war, it was actually Freud's nephew, Edward Bernays, who used Freud's ideas in America. An intelligence officer during the war, he found himself in need of a job. His theory was that if the Nazis could manipulate people in wartime, then surely business owners and politicians could manipulate people in peacetime. He called his new idea public relations. 
<laughs> became the so-called father of American advertising. This is what he said in his book. Which the book was called Propaganda. The conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. We are governed, our minds are molded, our tastes formed, our ideas suggested largely by men we have never heard of. In almost every act of our daily lives, we are dominated by the relatively small number of persons who pull the wires that control the public mind. Man, hit the nail right on the head. So that affects you and me, and that's a, that's a real conspiracy. So, fear. Fear and want. You know, um, I don't think anybody can really argue that the climate isn't changing because it is changing. But we live in this fear-mongering harangue. And I just want to remind you of something God said, okay? Not that I'm saying that we shouldn't, you know, take better care of the earth because we should. But this is what the Lord said. And this is a promise you know, backed up by the rainbow. Uh, Genesis 8.22, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. You should never forget that. You should never forget that. These things aren't out of God's hands. These things aren't out of his control. Um, and, and, you know, Isaiah would say, fear God first. Because the whole of these... Uh, this messaging is to induce fear. Uh, one I read uh, the other day, that the Gulf Stream is going to stop in 2025. And it's like every year they come up with a new one, and I don't think that's going to happen. But, boy, it sure can get you thinking, right? And it can sure stir up fear. Um, Isaiah 30. Verse 1, woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel but not of me, who devise plans but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who walk down to, to go down to Egypt and have not asked my advice to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame and trust in the shadow of Egypt shall, shall be your humiliation. The church of Jesus Christ should not be following the advice of sinful leaders. I mean, we have to have leaders, but we shouldn't be following uh, them. You know what the job of a real prophet is? A job of a real prophet is to go to the king and the leader and say, what you're doing isn't right. But the kind of prophets we have today don't like to say those kinds of things to leaders. They tell them what they want to hear. And one of the best examples of uh, Isaiah doing this is chapter 39. So at this point, Hezekiah is the king. And Hezekiah is a good king. He uh, largely been faithful. But uh, he did something that, you know, I'm kind of tempted to do myself. He got really sick. And he said, you know, am I to die in the prime of my life? And he begged God not to take him. Because God said, get your house in order because you're going to die. Well, nobody wants to <laughs> accept that. I, you know, uh, 
when I was told I had heart disease, I, I started praying, God, I don't want to die. And I was like, I heard that when I was 65, and I was like saying, Lord, I'd like to live to be 80. And then I realized that's the same 15 years that Hezekiah asked for. It's like, ooh, I better be careful. Because Hezekiah got 15 more years, but he didn't end well. And he lived a faithful life. He was a faithful king, but he didn't end well. And so this is what Isaiah said to him in chapter 39. At that time, Merodach Baladin, the son of Baladin, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard he'd been sick and had recovered. Hezekiah was pleased with them and showed them the house of his treasures, the silver and the gold, the spices and precious ointments, and all his armory, all that was found among his treasures. There was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show him. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said, what did these men say? And from where did they come to you? From where did they come from? So Hezekiah said, they came to me from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, what have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, they've seen all that is in my house. There's nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And that's exactly what happened. They took everything. All those treasures, those gold, silver vessels and plates and bronze things from the temple. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And then listen to Hezekiah's reply. So Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he said, at least there will be peace and truth in my days. Boy, I hope we never get like that. You know, there's a lot going on in our culture, and um, I just want to say to you younger Christians, this is your fight. It's your fight to stick up for what's right in your country. I don't mean fighting as in, you know, guns and all that stuff. I mean to stand up for what's right no matter the pressure put on you to bow to what's evil. Now, you know, uh, I'm going to be 70 before the year's out, and the fight's kind of gone out of me. <laughs> uh, I don't, you don't have the influence. Once you've uh, retired, your, your influence diminishes. You can have influence. But for those of you that are in the thick of life, you younger people, you're the warriors God wants to raise up. And to, to do what? To do what's right and to bring the good news. That's what. The world needs Jesus. They need it more than a change of government. Although I'd be looking forward to that. <laughs> the world needs Jesus. That's the message we have to bring. We have a message of bad news and good news. And I'll tell you, the good news doesn't mean as much if they don't know what the bad news is. Now you come to the best part of Isaiah, chapter 40. Verse three, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the deserts a highway for our God. For every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked, crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. 
for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The voice said, cry out. He said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. My generation are pretty proud of being 60s generation. Uh, you know, you see stuff on Facebook. Anybody know what this is? You know, you're cool if you remember what this is. You know, like a gear shift on the column. You know, the, the H pattern. Um, you know, we were lovely once. We were young, full of vim and vigor, but now our generation's getting older. And I know to you young people, we look like ancient. I can remember when I was 18, looking at my aunts and uncles, thinking, man, these people are old. They were only like barely 50. <laughs> Lest you be proud, young people, the same thing, Lord willing, will happen to you. We don't last forever. The only thing that lasts forever is the word of God. And so this is the message. Get rid of all the obstacles. Get, straighten out all the crookedness in your life and make ready a path for the Lord in your life. That's the message. Because God's coming. He's coming. He's coming for our culture, our country, but he might just come for you individually before that happens. Probably will. Because we don't know exactly when he's coming. But he's coming for you. I love chapter 40, verse 21. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. You know, sometimes people say, oh, the Bible. They, they believe the earth was flat right there. It says the earth is a circle, 700 B.C. People don't know what the Bible says. And meanwhile, the world believes the lie. The world believes that it's all about the creature and they've forgotten the creator. And it's like, have you not known? Have you not heard? Have you not seen? Don't you look up anymore? Don't you look? Verse 27, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my just claim is passed over by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary? You're not alone. He hasn't left you. He hasn't forgotten you. You might feel that way, but have you not heard he gives power to the weak, and those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. You know, for all the strength of youth, sometimes the most difficult part of your life is your, your years between high school and somewhere in your 20s, trying to figure out and trying to know where you should be going and where you should be doing, and hearing all these messages and trying to figure out who you are. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. When I was in my mid-20s, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. I was so lost.
Probably the greatest chapter in Isaiah is 53. What a wonderful, that's why they call this the fifth gospel. Because of Isaiah 53, it's, it's beautiful. The end of 52, he says, behold my servant. Then all of 53 is about the Messiah, the servant of God. Verse five, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I can remember going to Glenda's house, 1981. I'd sit and wait for her. Glenda's wall, Howard's wall. I'd be sitting there looking at these verses. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. I'd be just like, oh my God. It just hit me. Now look on the other wall. Oh, we like sheep have gone astray. I'm telling you, those verses converted me before I, I ever heard the preaching in this church. They bore a hole in my heart. I realized that I was a sinner and that God had put all my sin on Jesus. And then when I got here and heard the gospel, I realized that that was for me, that I could have that. You know, I was thinking the other day, I love to walk and I'm out walking on the Sunrise Trail, walk by the ocean. Beautiful, beautiful. And I, the Lord just kind of laid on me, you're living in the promised land, son. And I am. I got my family up the road, my little granddaughter that loves me, a wife who loves me and is faithful to me, friends all over the place, quiet, peaceful place once September comes. <laughs> We're always glad when the cottagers go home. Um, but I am, like, if you had seen me when I was 25, I just can't get over it. What God's done for me. Well, Isaiah, just what a man of God. You know, he saw God high and lifted up. He was never the same. And he had such an appreciation. I hope you read Isaiah. You should know Isaiah as a Christian. It's one of the most important books in the Bible. You discover things about God that you may have never known. But how did Isaiah's life end? How do you think? The end well? Well, if you go over to Hebrews 37, talking about all the faithful people of the Old Testament, Hebrews 11:37. Uh, says they were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. That's how a lot of their lives ended. You know what happened to 
Isaiah, well, Hezekiah died. He had a son called Manasseh. Wicked, wicked, the most probably wickedest king in the Old Testament. That's when under Manasseh's reign, God said, that's it. Even when Josiah came along and cleaned everything up, he said, that's it. I'm done with Israel. Uh, the Jewish uh, Targum says, you know, their, their traditional history that Manasseh was after Isaiah and Isaiah hid in a tree. And Manasseh had the tree cut down with Isaiah in the middle of it. He was sawing him too. And God warned him. <laughs> it's not going to end well. He gave him a hard calling and gracious. I, I, I can't imagine. Shoot me first. The saw me in two. Ah, only hurt for a minute. You know what? Maybe it didn't even hurt at all. Because maybe God just, but God took him. <laughs> Boom, right to heaven, I'm sure. So I just want to leave you with two things. Isaiah's message. Another beautiful verses, Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. You know, that just simply means God wants you to come to him. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Don't wait for next year or you know, on your deathbed. You know, quite often people are on the deathbed, they have no capability to accept the Lord. They have no mind left, or they are in so much, under so much, uh, you know, so heavily drugged, you just don't want to wait. Do it today, while you got your mind and while you're, while you're thinking. What does it mean to come to the Lord? It means to come to Jesus. You know, Isaiah's message was this, we're all sinners, God's holy. How do you get to God? God wants repentance. In other words, a, uh, a turning from sin and a turning to God. Well, how do you turn to God? Well, you turn to Jesus and Jesus makes it possible for you to come to God. It's not very difficult, really. But he said, you know, take down the obstacles, straighten out the crooked places. That's hard. It's gonna cost you to come to Jesus. It's gonna cost you to live for Jesus. But it's gonna be going to be the best way to live. So that's one thing. Seek the Lord while he may be found. If you're listening to this sermon and you don't know Christ as your Savior, you should talk to somebody. Maybe you should go visit somebody who's a Christian and see what's on their wall. Um, ask somebody. Ask a believer. Ask the pastors. Ask me. Because it needs to be kind of a personal thing. Um, the other thing is this for Bob and Mary Christian how do you keep your head in a time like this sometimes you just want to go nuts don't you this is how you do it 66 no, 65 17 for behold I create new heavens and a new earth and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind 
but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and join my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. We keep our head by looking to the Lord. There's no hope in this world. There's no saving this mess. Our hope is the kingdom of God. That's what you keep your eyes on. Fear the Lord. Don't fear all this other stuff. Fear the Lord. And just get caught up in his goodness. Because if you're a Christian, you're living in the promised land, man. I don't know what it's going to be like for the next generation. I don't know what it's going to be like 20 years from now. I kind of shudder to think. But I trust that God will keep you young people following him, trusting in him, and even living a victorious life in the midst of whatever comes. Would you stand with me for prayer, please? Father, we thank you for Isaiah the prophet. What a, what a calling you gave him, Lord, and what a vision you gave him, and what a message. Some of our most favorite passages are found in these 66 chapters. And Lord, um, you know the times we live in, kind of like the times he lived in, hard times, difficult times for people who want to live for God. And Lord, you brought them through and you can bring us through and I pray that we would keep our eyes on you. I pray that we would follow you faithfully, that we would just put up both hands and surrender to you, Lord, that we would offer up the hand of uh, signing up and saying, Lord, here am I, send me. And Lord, I pray for our young people in particular, and whatever uh, comes uh, in the future. Lord, help them to just trust in you and to keep their eyes on you. Uh, Lord, you can even make uh, your faithful people ride on the high hills of the earth even when things are falling apart. And so, Lord, we put our trust in you. Thank you for your word. Please bless it to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.